So if you have a Bible, let's turn to uh, the Gospel of John. If you don't have a Bible, there's one perhaps somewhere close by. You go ahead and grab it. We're going to be in the Gospel of John, which is about three quarters of the way through the Bible. And we're going to go to chapter 20. John chapter 20 and verse 24, where we'll be. We're going to look at a story, a fantastic meeting, really, an encounter between Jesus and one of his students, otherwise known as a disciple, a man named Thomas. I want to get us as close, as close to the story as we possibly can. And so one way to do that, not the only way, but one way to do that is to, is to experience the story from the perspective of one of its characters. And so this morning, this will be new for some, maybe even uncomfortable for you, but that's all right, you'll get over it. Uh, I'm going to uh, tell the story as if I am someone in it. I'm going to tell the story as if I am the disciple Thomas. Okay, so I'm going to turn around, and then I'm going to turn back, and I'm going to be Thomas for a few minutes. And then I'm going to turn around eventually, and I'll be Josh again. Okay, just so you know what's still, I don't want you to be like confused or anything like that. But I'm, going to, but I, I'm serious, it's going to be an opportunity. I want us to live, I want us to relive this incredible story. There's none like it. You ready? Okay. I was exhausted. I had not slept in three days. It all happened so fast. Three thrilling years gone after just three dreadful days. We were, we were just with him, you know. We were just with him, reclining at the table. We were sharing a meal. And he kept on saying over and over again, my time has come, my hour is near. But we just didn't understand he said he was going to leave us, but, but none of us expected this. We were fools. You see, it doesn't, it doesn't take much time with this man to find out how small you are. It doesn't take much time with this man to find out how needy you are, how desperate you really are. Do you know what it's like to be in the company of Christ? There's no one like Jesus Christ. He was our life. Everything about me was wrapped up in him. There was, even, there was even one point just a few days before his arrest where I confidently stood before my fellow disciples and said, wherever Jesus goes, I go. If he's going to die, let us die with him. I'm a coward. I'm a coward. Because just days after that moment, they had him arrested. And I fled. I abandoned my Lord. Have you ever felt that? You think you even say one thing, but your life reflects another. You can put on a really good show, but when it comes down to the moment, you crumble. Yeah, that's me. And it was all of us. They put Jesus on trial all throughout 
Thursday night. They even got the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, involved. And with that, within hours, an arrest developed into a ruling. Chains became a cross. And right before my weary eyes of beaten and bruised, blood spattered, flesh maimed, Jesus was impaled to a wooden cross. And I watched my teacher die. And this sent me into the depths. It sent me into questions. It sent me into isolation. It's, it sent me into wanting to be alone. I needed to be alone. And that next Sabbath day was the worst day of my life. That somber Saturday was when I fully realized Jesus was gone and he wasn't coming back. My hope set with the sun that evening. Then came the next morning, Sunday morning, and it met me with just as much despair. Nothing had changed, nothing was different. I began to think back, what was I, what was I supposed to make of the last three years? See, my faith was vanishing away by the hour. What was I to do about this Jesus? What was there to believe now? Jesus is gone. What value does a dead man's words really have, anyway? Soon, morning became evening, and I still found myself longing for my brothers, these other disciples, these other students of Jesus. They were all I had. I assumed that losing Jesus would mean losing them too. What good is a band of disciples with a dead Jesus? So I waited, I had to wait really for the sun to disappear. I couldn't afford to be seen, it was too dangerous. If they killed Jesus, they would soon be killing us too. And so, approaching the house, I just quietly knocked on the door, expecting for my despair to be met with theirs, expecting my sorrow to find good company. And the door opened. And there they were, the twelve. Now eleven, Judas is dead. I walked in and it was obvious. I began to look around and something was, was different. It was as if the roof had been blasted off and the sun was radiating in. The brightness of their faces, you should have seen the hope of their hearts. What in the world? Were they not just there? Did they not see our Lord Jesus Christ dead on a tree? Did they not feel the despair? Where were their tears? And so confused, and frankly a bit irritated, I said, what? What is it? What are you so happy about? And with one voice, they cried out in verse 25. We have seen the Lord. We have seen 
the Lord. And so then they began to recount the day. Peter and John were able to tell it firsthand. They saw the empty tomb. Jesus is alive, they said. Supposedly, Mary's on first. And supposedly, just moments before I arrived, Jesus had visited them too. And so Mary's message became theirs. Hey, twin, we have seen the Lord. Right there, right there in that moment was my opportunity to believe. Their eyewitness account. I had walked with these men for years. They were my brothers and they had a divine message for me. But as they spoke, my heart closed. I was not ready. I was not willing. It required too much. You see, I had, listen, I had all the facts I needed. I couldn't deny what I saw. I saw the cross with my own eyes. I saw my teacher, my Lord, get destroyed. That's what it was. His flesh was turned inside out that night. My eyes prevented my heart from believing their word. My reason, my rationale eclipsed their witness. And so I said in verse 25, rather emphatically, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger, I want to touch the place of the nails. And I want to place my hand in his side or else I will never, ever believe. I wasn't just hesitant. I was stubborn. I wasn't just stubborn. I was emphatically opposed. These were my conditions. I will never, ever, ever, ever believe unless I see Jesus in the way that I demand him to be. I will never believe unless it's on my terms. And I left that room a reasonable rebel. That entire next week was miserable. A week went by. And while my fellow disciples spent a week in the wonder of a living Savior, I spent a week entrenched in the agony of disbelief. I forfeited their joy for the sake of my pride. But thank God, eventually, that next Sunday came. The other disciples, they insisted, gosh, these guys, Peter especially, is so frustrating. He insisted that we meet on what they were now calling the Lord's Day. It's cute. They gathered to celebrate his eternal life. I joined them, though my heart was unchanged. And as we were together, as the people of God came together, it happened. I don't know how else to say it. The doors were locked. But Jesus showed up. 
Jesus just appeared. He was just suddenly standing amongst us. I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. I was thinking the same thing a week ago. Don't lose me here. I'm not just one to say or to believe anything. But this was real. I saw it. It's undeniable. There he stood. Just as they had spoken. You have to understand. The last time I saw Jesus, he was dead. The last time I saw Jesus, I'm serious, he wasn't even recognizable. They beat his face in so hard that he looked like a different person. They smashed a crown of thorns on his head. They drove two stakes through his hands and his feet. Don't you see what I was going through in this moment? Is this him? My tortured teacher was now my risen redeemer. And I, I watched. You see, I watched. I looked. I was watching his chest. I was watching his diaphragm move. He was breathing. He was alive. And he was whole. But you see, with Jesus, it's not about whether or not you think he existed. Jesus is going to go in and he is going to scale and mine the depths of your heart. Because as he addressed us all that day... His eyes caught mine. The resurrected Jesus began hunting my heart. And he stepped toward me, and with words as piercing as those nails, and with speech as sharp as that spear, Jesus says to me in verse 27, Put your finger here, and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Don't be an unbeliever. Be a believer. Don't doubt. Believe. And the only thing that I could muster out of me, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. My heart came to life that day because Jesus ripped it to shreds. He wasn't even there a week ago, or so I thought. He wasn't even there. I made those demands unless I see it, unless I touch it. But here was the risen Jesus repeating every word. How's that? See, this wasn't just an exercise in repetition. This was an exercise of repentance. Jesus was peeling back the layers of my heart. Notice, all of my conditions became his commands. At first, I was the one who was demanding, but now it was the risen Christ coming. And that's just how it is with Jesus. You have to forsake yourself in order that he might rule over you. This is just who Jesus is. He's going to require all of you. He's the one who will search the deepest part of you. He is the one who will take the very thing that you cling to most, like my reason, and he will squash it. 
expose it. And His grace, Jesus Christ, exposed me that morning. And He saved my life. He was the King of my heart. He was my Lord. This isn't a philosophical statement. This is a worship moment. He was my God. I belonged to Him, and He belonged to me. But then, what He said next has very little to do with me. And it has everything in the world to do with you. Verse 29, Jesus says, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. See, from this moment on, things were going to change. Things did change. There's a, there's a cosmic shift that takes place when Jesus rises from the dead. He's changing the way belief works. He's changing the way how or what, on what we believe. No longer do we believe in a Jesus that we have to see in the flesh. No. You know where Jesus is? He's at the right hand of God. Instead of an earthly ministry, Jesus has a heavenly one. Instead of being physically here, he has sent his spirit, the Holy Spirit, not to give physical eyes, but spiritual ones. And from now on, men and women are invited to believe in the Son of God without ever having seen him. Now we must live by faith, not by sight. Now we must trust even when it doesn't meet the requirements of our reason. And so let me ask you, do you believe, though you have not seen? Are you willing to believe, even though you will not see the Lord Jesus Christ right now? That's not only the offer, it's the requirement. Okay. So let's unpack this just really briefly. Let's unpack what this story is about. Let's unpack some of the principles that we see here. What can we learn from this? This is where your sermon notes will come handy. We learn at the very end of this story something important. Faith says, use your reason, don't worship it. Faith says, use your reason, just don't worship it. Faith does not say deny reason, but faith does say dethrone reason. So Thomas had a faith based on his own terms. Unless I see this, unless I touch that, I will never ever believe. That's in all of us though, by the way. I'm not going to deny that. I'm not going to run away from that. We all have that. We can't really blame Thomas. Even more, God has built us with this, with, in many ways. He's built us with senses to see things, to touch things, to feel things. That's a good thing. That's the benefit, the wonderful and gorgeous benefit of something called science. It's important. Are human senses helpful? Of course they are. But are human senses all sufficient? No. Look. Do I have the right to judge the way the world is or isn't simply by what my reason says? Jesus' answer in this story is no. 
You don't. I don't have the authoritative right with my own eyes that are fading and say, this is what everything that I see is enough. And frankly, none of us actually live that way anyway. Maybe you came here with questions. Maybe you came here with doubts. Good. I did too. You know what? I've been following, I'm 31. I've been following Christ for 23 years. And I have doubts. I have questions too. But let me ask you, have your questions become demands? Has reason taken over? While questions and reason are important, they are limited. So hear me clearly. God is not asking you to deny your reason. He gave you your reason. But he is asking you to dethrone it. While reason is God-given, it is not God himself. Faith says reason matters, but it also says that reason is flawed. Faith humbles self-reliance. And so let me ask, what role does reason play in your life? Does it serve your faith or does it extinguish it? Where does your trust lie? In what you can see or what, what God has said? to us in his word. Which gives us another point this morning. Faith clings to what the Bible says about Jesus. This story shows us this. Stay with me here. I'm not just making this up because I'm a Christian. I need to insert the Bible clause. Listen, listen. Faith clings to what the Bible says about Jesus. This is so subtle for us, perhaps, but it is blaringly loud in the mind of John, the author. Look at what those apostles said to Peter in verse 25. We have seen, excuse me, he said to Thomas, we have seen the Lord. Now here's the value of that one sentence. It's a precursor. It's a foreshadowing to the Bible itself. Who completed the Bible? Who wrote the New Testament? Those guys. Those are the authors. Those are the voice of the New Testament. They are Christ's disciples. Yes, but he gave them another word that's just as important and more important post-resurrection called apostles. They're the sent ones who have a divine message from the very mouth of God. And they had a divine message that morning for Thomas. They related to him and said, hey, Jesus is alive. In their moment, in that, in that very moment, what John is trying to tell us is that my witness, my account is more important than your reason. A witness must eclipse reason, not the other way around. Their authoritative word became more important than Thomas's need to see things for himself. That is the essence of faith. You can't believe in Jesus if you're not willing to believe the message that's in this book. Period. Period talking to a friend and a brother last night, frankly, you will be a miserable Christian if you don't believe in this book. Miserable Christian if you don't think that this book has value. See, generation after generation after generation, they think they're getting better, but it's just, it's the same. They're trying to throw God's word in the trash. 
The world is trying to reject the Jesus of this book and repaint a new one. But the new modern Jesus, he doesn't exist. They preach a Jesus who avoids negativity. They preach a Jesus who is going to soothe your sins and say it's all right. They're going to preach a Jesus that encourages you to be all about yourself. It's, it's in here. Just pull it out of you. That is the polar. I mean, there, there can't be any more extremes from what the Jesus of the Bible is and the Jesus that's being talked about out there. I'm not trying to be harsh for harshness sake. I have one opportunity with 45, 50 of you. And if you don't know that the place you go get him is here, I don't know where else you're going to find him. The only Jesus the world has is the one that's described in the Bible. Believing in Jesus requires believing in him as the Bible reveals him. And so let me ask, which Jesus do you know? And where are you going to go to get him? He's not moldable. He's not a figment of our imagination. And so if I can encourage us, if I can encourage the members of this church, and I can encourage the Christians in this room, and I can beg the non-Christians in this room, let's be a people obsessed with God's word. Let's go there, and only there, to find our risen Savior. And third, faith in a living Lord demonstrates a living heart. Faith in a, a living Lord demonstrates a living heart. Look at what John says after the story about Thomas. So go back to the Bible here. Look at verse 30, and it says this. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written. So here's the purpose of the entire book. Here it is. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and the result. And that by believing you may have life in his name. This is huge. Massive statement that John makes right there. Not only is he saying that this book is all that you need to believe in Jesus, he's also pointing us to how important the resurrection is. This is why we're so giddy about the resurrection. You can't truly believe in Jesus unless you believe he's alive. And this is what John says. When you believe in Jesus as the resurrected Lord, it resurrects you. It brings you... Believing in Christ as the eternal life gives you eternal life. And that means, I love opposites, so think of the opposite of that. That means that if you don't believe in this Jesus, this risen Jesus, you don't have life. Josh, I'm breathing just fine. What are you talking about? I'm not talking about your physical life. I'm not talking about your, your, your physical lungs. I'm not talking about your beating heart. I'm talking about your spiritual life. I'm talking about your spiritual heart. Because if you don't believe that Jesus Christ is alive, your heart is dead. 
And so even though we live, we have no life. So how do we make sense of that? And, and what's the hope there? Well, it's going to start with knowing who God is. It starts with hearing what we call and celebrate as the gospel. There is a God. If you are not a Christian, please, 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 please listen to me. There is a God, a real God. And He created everything, everything, by the word of His mouth. He created humans, He created us, He created you. And He created us to reflect Him. Like a coin reflects a face. And he created us to be in relationship with him. And the wonderful thing about this is that he created us to have life with him, to be in him, to be with him. We were made. Your purpose in this life is to thrive in a satisfying submission to a living, holy, loving God. That's why you breathe. But, as humans, we want more. You ever felt this? We want more. Reflecting God wasn't enough. We wanted to be God. We didn't embrace Him or His standards. We said, you know what? My word is as good as yours. My reason is better than yours. No one else will be my master. And this is what God calls sin. This is, what, this is that word we hear often. To oppose Him. To try to usurp God. And so, like a mother disciplines her son, or like a judge punishes a criminal, God punished us. We are the criminals. And in that moment, a spiritual death takes place in all of us. Though we breathe, we have no life. And so each one of us stands guilty. We stand lifeless before God as his eternal enemy. Those who do not believe in Jesus Christ are enemies of God. But God, here's where, here's where we get a lot of glee. A lot of joy and every ounce of hope for this life from the first breath to the last stands on this. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love in which he loved us, he sent his son to us. As both God and man, Jesus is the perfect image of God. More than that, he is God. He is the very essence of God. He is the very essence of life. As God is alive, Jesus is alive. As God is just, Jesus is just. As God is love, Jesus is love. He meets every standard that God has ever met. More than that, He is the standard of God. And He came into the world to save us from ourselves. Your greatest problem and mine isn't anything out there. It's something in here. And Jesus came to fix it. The author of life came to break the chains of your heart. 
He died to exchange his life for our death. And he rose from the dead today to erase the sting of death forever. He died to smash your heart of stone. He died to change your affections now. Instead of chasing after these things that will destroy you, you'll be longing and hungry and desperate to chase after him who gives you life. That is what God will do inside of a person he breathes life. We can be with this God forever because of the eternal death paid for and the eternal life in Jesus Christ. We can be with God forever. No longer enemies, but friends. No longer hostile, but family. I can be called a son of God. Ladies, you can be called a daughter of God. Find something better. Find something better than that. And so let me ask you, do you want to be in the family of God? Do you want to be in the family of God today? Do you want God to give you life? Do you want him to turn your life upside down? Well, as thousands of people did right after they found out about Jesus' resurrection, they said, what must we do? What can I do about this story? What can I do about this truth? And the answer is repent and believe. Turn and trust. This is what Thomas discovered that morning, and this is why you're here this morning. To nail it down to one statement, God brought you here to hear this. You'll see this in your notes as well. Faith. What is it? It is a self-denying, eternity-providing trust in what the Bible says about Jesus. Faith is a self-denying, eternity-providing trust in what the Bible says about Jesus. This is what you have to do. With your sin and death before you, looking to Jesus Christ, you must repent of sin and believe in Him. He requires your heart, but He offers you a new one. So incredible. So incredible. What a thrilling thing it is to be saved by the mighty conqueror of death. Oh, I love it. I love him. So, the question for you today is, will you deny yourself? Or will you deny the living Savior, Jesus Christ? I pray that it will be the first. Let's pray.